pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Declarations of War. I am your co-host, Alexei Carr, joined by fellow NAR co-host, Zero Cool. Hello, hello. And our special guest for this episode, current top killer on NAR's contract in Immensi, Anchor Games tournament winner, and the author of TheGrayBill.com, Nora Maldoran. Hello, hello. Hi, everybody. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've had shows. I appreciate your patience. I've been moving house halfway across the country, now joining the EVE community in the Midwest. Looking forward to all the cool meetups around here. So if you're in the area, this might be a good time to attend one. You never know if you might run into the voice. (laughs) Uh, We've had a couple big news stories, the biggest of which, of course, the CSM. The elections are over. The people have spoken. And we have the council we deserve, if not the council we want. (laughs) Let's hop right into it. So the, the... Proud winners, we'll go over them. Angry Mustache from Goonstorm Federation, Arisa Elkin from Electus Matari, Risk Rubal from The Initiative, Jinx DeCare from Brave Collective, Kazanir from Goonstorm Federation, Kenneth Feld from Pandemic Legion, Luke Aninan from Fraternity, Mark Resurrectus from Turbo Feed or Glory, Pando from The Initiative, and Storm Delay from Pandemic Horde. Now, if you've been counting, that is. Four Imperium candidates, two uh, Panfam candidates for a total of six. You throw Jinx and the Fraternity guy in there. That's eight Nullsec candidates out of ten. And, of course, being one of the bigger stories to come out of this election cycle. Any surprises there for you, Zero or Nora? No, no, Alec. Um, The people have spoken. And uh, the people, I think, at least those who vote in the elections, are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly um, from the sort of Nullsec uh, campus, uh, it, it would it would seem. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for how organised the uh, sort of Nullsec candidates are, and how they definitely get the most out of the votes that, that they can um, influence. And perhaps uh, were the the opposition or the competition. Um, if they were organized differently, perhaps they, they could compete more. But I think even then, we would still see, obviously, an overwhelming uh, representation from Nelsec. And, uh, you know, that's where, you know, the heart of, of the game has, has typically been, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the uh, the folks that bemoan that there's not more non-Nelsec representation on the CSM, they're typically loud, they're typically after the fact, and there's typically way more of them posting on Reddit than voting, apparently, because every year it's the same story. We see Nullsec turn out in droves. Uh, I, you know, I, th- I don't think they're the majority of the game, but of the voting population, there's certainly a higher percentage of Nullsec players that take the time to vote. Uh, you know, Unlike physical elections, there's no physical or economic barriers to voting. Uh, everybody's got access to the polls with just a click away, you know, access to all the candidate information they could ever hope for. And they're the people that care, ultimately. Uh, and they might only care because their alliance leaders are pinging them, telling them to care, but they still go out and do it. 
Yes, and of course, you know, many, many players play in other areas of space. Um, but if, if those players are not organised and, and together on, on a particular issue, looking at that long list of candidates, they may they may pick a candidate based on, on something they've heard about or something they've read. Um, but there's so many to choose from that, that at the end of the day... Um, Unless, unless the the competition can find some way to uh, to to sort of group up on issues or, or, or narrow down sort of their um, strategy uh, on how to communicate, you know who who people should be voting for if they want particular sort of uh, play style, play styles represented. Uh, I think this is something that we're just going to continue to see, and um, of course, you know the people have spoken, right? They they want. Um, this is who they want on the CSM. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of complaints since about uh, sort of wh- whether the, the voting should be done in a different way or whether it's fair. And I think ultimately, you know, it's a democratic process. Um, it's great that, that the process is such that lots of votes are not wasted. And you can choose somebody who perhaps um, is your favourite candidate without without uh, missing out on on voting for somebody else if that person doesn't get through the uh, the early rounds. But uh, ultimately, the people have spoken. They've said who they want to represent them. And um, people, I think, should respect that and move forward now. And, uh, you know, we should see what comes next. And I think that's key. The, the voting system we have may not be perfect, but we do have a voting system where you can vote for the candidate you really want, the candidate that you feel is best represent your interests or that you most trust to do the right thing without having to worry about if they're actually going to have a shot at winning. You can put them on there and you can put five candidates like that on there and you don't have to think ahead of time about their electability before you make that choice. And I think that's a key aspect of the voting process that Eve has that, for instance, my own nation does not have. And I like that it brings in a diversity of candidates. I like that people don't have to do the political calculus in their head before they cast their vote. But at the same time, I think there's, you, you touched on it and we were talking about it before the show. You know, there is something we said for the candidates spreading themselves so thin. We had over 40 candidates who were effectively running for two, maybe three spots, right? Cause the null block vote as organized as it was, you knew that unless there was unprecedented turnout from other parts of the game, that certain blocks had the voting power to elect a certain number of candidates. Goons are going to get three, at least. Uh, Panfam will get two. Fraternity, you know, they, they could elect one. Last year they didn't, uh, I believe they put their voting power behind a not their own candidate. <laughs> when this year they, they corrected that mistake, uh, they got a candidate on. You know, you, you can do the math, and there are certain slots that, that are probably going to go to those folks, like I said, unless there's unprecedented turnout from other places. So, you know, you, you've got a very tiny shot. And I think what we see in the elimination rounds is a lot of candidates that don't have enough support to put them at number one getting knocked out in great numbers before we even get to relatively competitive candidates. And I do think that's an issue. It's plagued the wormhole community before. They've gone entire years without a representative, despite being a fairly populous region of the game. This year, they put their votes together. They got behind one candidate, threw everything behind him, and that candidate took the time to go out and get get himself on other ballots. So he got some down-ballot support and, lo and behold, elected. Absolutely. 
And I think uh, for me, uh, one of the surprises was that Ithaca missed out. Uh, but when you look at the voting power of the the organised blocks, and you look at, like you say, that the sort of number of spaces left over for other candidates, it's no real surprise that that Ithaca then was struggling to to compete there. Uh, but I think um, I felt a, a sense of um, disappointment among the people I've spoken to and, and some of the things I've read that uh, people are a bit sorry that Ithaca didn't get on. Um, fortunately, in some sense, perhaps um, the, as the first runner up, you know, it's not impossible. And it's certainly happened before, isn't it, where uh, somebody has dropped out mid, mid, midway through the term, and maybe Ithaca will get a chance, um, but maybe maybe next year. In fact, Arcia uh, was the alternate that got moved on and really made the most of her partial term, and now she's just been straight up reelected. It's uh, number two on the declarations of war ballot, number one on the faction warfare ballots. Uh, just an overall effective, timely representative like she she knows her stuff she has a proven track record of effectively influencing ccp's decision making and it just happens to be an area where at least for the next year probably more ccp is going to put a lot of their thought and resources and development time and that sort of stuff so to me she was a no-brainer candidate indeed uh, for me uh, i'm 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 sorry that Stitch didn't get a bit more support because I, I find Stitch's uh, writing on balance very very um, sensible and Stitch's approach to uh, feedback relating to the game I find very uh, of a high quality and I think that would have been you know a great asset for um, the CSM and for CCP to have had during this time but hopefully Stitch's feedback will still exist out there uh, and it won't. It won't matter too much that Stitch isn't on the CSM to give that that feedback. Yeah, I I mean, Tuskers is a very respectable alliance, but very small. I think Stitch's goal, if he really wants to get on, and I think he should run again because, I mean, he's he was number one on the Declarations of War ballot for a reason. He was highly placed last year. Uh, he's a fantastic person. I like Every answer I think I've ever heard him give on interviews as far as you know, his level of thought put into the game and the things that he wants to see, things I would like to see. But uh, you know, I don't think we can have like the small gang community being split between like him and Gideon and Ithaca. At some point, we have to go, okay, this is our number one, this is our number two. And then that person then has to do a lot of work to try to get onto some of these bigger ballots uh, you know, get the support of these communities to get on there, even communities that might seem diametrically opposed. You know, I I have to highlight the Mike Azariah path to office, a high sec player that was focused on high sec players and new players, managed to get himself on the ballots of just about every major null sec block because they got to like him. He's just a genuinely good, friendly person. He put a lot of time to build those relationships. And, you know, when those candidates got knocked out or they got their number one candidate elected, he was getting significant down-ballot support from just about everyone in addition to having his own solid initial voting base that kept him in the running to collect all of those. That's a very viable path to the CSM for someone who doesn't have support from a major alliance. I wonder, Alec, um, 
I just cast my mind back to some of the controversies, some of the things that the small gang representatives might have talked about during the election campaign and and how perhaps some of the null block uh, people were, were a bit concerned about some of the things they'd heard. Um, I wonder whether there's scope for such a candidate, somebody who, who the small gang community is prepared to get behind, whether they could make some concessions on some of the things they campaign on. Um, because ultimately, you know, does it really matter to everybody in the small gang community, um, say, let's say, in relation to jump gates and Ansiblex, uh, the, the stuff around that? It really is a divisive issue. You know, I, I personally don't have um, much to say about it. I think it's an interesting idea to talk about stuff, you know, big changes to the game. But if somebody said to me, it's a really bad idea, um, let's not go there. I'd be prepared to concede on that myself um, because there's plenty of other things to to think about. You know, if it only affects uh, the small gag community a little bit, is it really worth, uh, you know, butting heads? Uh, what, what, what do you think about things like concessions in, in order to get on? Is that something maybe people need to do to get on these these larger ballots? I don't think it's about so much about concessions as it just showing that you're a good person to work for and that you're bringing a valuable perspective to the table. Uh, if you're if you're being combative and you don't have your own source of support, you know why why should other people listen to you if all you're going to do is yell at them or or act like you're better than them? That's why you know certain candidates from LOSEC or small gang warfare community don't have much of a chance of getting on those ballots because they tend to think of themselves as in opposition to. I think Mike's strategy was more to, you know, show himself as a partner that he could contribute valuably. He wasn't there to set up an us versus them type thing about a way to just like give a voice in the council that wasn't there and, you know, show that he was in general, a positive person to represent the community as a whole and like really beat that drum fairly constantly to a lot of different null communities. And he was able to get in there. And once he got on, you know, the other CSMs found him to be very cool to work with. They like what he brought to the table. So they continually recommended him to be on their ballots in some capacity. He wasn't always very high, but he was there, you know, and as their candidates either got elected or weren't viable, he would get that down ballot support. I mean, the, the CSM doesn't really pass legislation or anything like that, so there's not really much compromise to be had. I think it's more your style and, and communication strategies that you're employing rather than like a, a particular stance you have that you need to make a compromise on or not compromise. Yes, I think ultimately we're all trying to work for the health of the game overall, I imagine. And everything I hear when people talk, they all seem to have the same goal in mind, really. And, uh, yeah, I can imagine that just opening those lines of communication to show that this is somebody who, you know, I'm somebody who you'd want to work with, isn't it, I suppose? Somebody who you'd want to talk about the game with, um, talk about some of the things that uh, CCP might be proposing and maybe share some ideas and, and maybe things just go from there. Yeah, I think Stitch, to his to his credit, probably has that ability. Just, you know, got to put the legwork in, start making inroads. Um, he's, he's acts and says and does all the right things and all the different podcasts and stuff I've seen him on, but 
Some of it's working directly with people and going outside your comfort zone a little bit more. To be continued. Yeah. Nora, what's your take? As a blogger, I'm sure you've been following the situation quite closely. Yeah, sure. Um, speaking about Stitch, um, he actually was a number top, uh, number one spot of my ballot, my personal one. And um, RCA was at the second. So at least one of the two made it on. So I'm kind of happy about that. Still mm-hmm. a bit disappointed we have so much um, yeah, block candidates. But yeah, that's how it goes. Um, but I think uh, people, if they put in the effort, like can still make an impact with uh, giving good feedback. And especially Stitch Kane then is one of the guys uh, who can do that. Um, and, and remember the changes that were happening to the uh, interdiction nullifier modules, which changed interceptors heavily. And at first, this module was intended to be a low slot, which would had completely messed up the whole meta, uh, <laughs> to say it diplomatically. And uh, yeah, the malediction and Ares would, would have been really in trouble. And the crow, at least, like that ship only has like two low slots to begin with, and it needs all that low slots to uh, like for uh, alignment and speed. Uh, you, you cannot sacrifice one for an for an interdiction nullifier. Um, so. And, and I remember Stitch making this huge Reddit post about it. And uh, yeah, after that, it didn't took long, and this module became a high slot. So that that was a workable uh, situation then. And I think um, that change came especially from a null block perspective, because uh, Fossey claws were still a thing back then. Like a fleet of claws, like 200 claws, warping in to a mentosis link, shooting the Drake or prophecy or whatever it was that did the antosising, like volleyed it and warping back out again. And uh, that was possible because uh, the interceptors were still nullified and there was no cooldown on it like there is now. And um, yeah, you, had, you basically had no drawbacks to it. So now I think we are in a somewhat workable spot which fixed that fossil claw problem, but also does completely mess up like a small gang hunting interceptor. So it's kind of, kind of a good spot we ended up with. But um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how how it would have turned out without Stitch making this uh, big Reddit post about it. So I hope he he continues posting, also uh, when not being on the CSM. Absolutely, I think he will. I mean, it's, he cares about it. It's a passion, obviously. So I just uh, I'm saying it more to like. Candidates like him don't get discouraged, even if you didn't make it on this year. It's It can be a bit of a marathon, not a sprint to get on, especially if you don't come from a large block. And, you know, there's there's try to get on the null blocks method, and there's also try to expand your own voting base method. You know, find people that haven't voted and convince them to vote for you next time. But that's a really difficult one. I think the voting public, like the, the body of votes, has more or less stayed fairly constant. Which is actually itself interesting, considering the game population is going down. Yes, um, I heard it mentioned during the, uh, the sort of the run up to the actual announcement of the results, and shortly after, how perhaps people who stream, um, perhaps with with you know a good following on Twitch, uh, how how they have a lot of power, um, voting sort of power. Um, Apparently not. Yes, uh, not enough, <laughs> but uh, 
and then, and then you've got you've got people who have a, a different type of um, input into the game community and, and a different type of in-game um, notoriety. And uh, I wonder if uh, you know a combination of the two is is kind of what's needed. You know, somebody who creates sort of uh, that content um, like like a stream, but then also has you know a, a finger in, a, in every other pie. You know, in terms of uh, the other things that that are done. Um, uh, maybe that would be enough in combination to to tip somebody over the edge. And um, I, I know, for example, Arcia is is an example of of somebody who does a bit of everything in that regard. Mm-hmm. I mean, shout-outs to Torvald. He came really close. Um, he was right behind Ithaca. But then he had other streamers, like Redline, I think, was the first out. So just being a good streamer, not enough. Although it did work for iBeast when he ran. So it's not uh, not completely yep. outside the realm of possi- uh, possibility. Yep. I mean, when I ran, my my base was mostly declarations of war listenership. And then I did a lot of back-channeling with smaller NullSec alliances to get their people in. But, yeah, I mean, it helps to have a big, nice base of support you can start from. I think that's where the potential for streamers is. But it's, you know, in that sense, you're kind of competing for votes, right? Because you're competing with other streamers. You're competing with, because uh, I presume a lot of the people that are watching those streams are NullSec players. You're probably competing with their alliance block, vote, which I think is probably what happened with Redline. Yeah, and, and I think um, Ibeast or Lucy Lu was on the Imperium vote as well. Mm. So I guess that helped a lot. Well, interesting stuff, and uh, I want to give a thank you to the Ancient Gaming Noob who did some really good ballot analysis, which went behind the scenes and put out in text form a lot of great stuff, including who voted for who, the elimination orders, uh, ballot groupings, that kind of thing. Really fantastic. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Moving on to some noir stuff. Um, oh, man. I <laughs> We had a contract, and oh, boy, was it a good one, and I cannot believe I missed pretty much all of it. I was there for the first couple days. I'm going to be here for the last couple days, but it seems like I missed all the fun. And Nora, I was very glad to have you on. Your top killer for this contract. Walk us through it. Well, um, it's a. Uh, I think it's called asset denial, right? I'm still a bit new to this whole uh, mercenary yeah, yeah. job thingy. So the goal was basically to um, yeah shut down a certain pocket in uh, in Nolsec and make it basically unusable or in terms of ratting, mining, and uh, yeah, basically money making. And um, yeah, it kind of worked out. Um, at least uh, I can only speak for the uh, U time zone of the part, but for that, um, it was morally effective. Yeah, we well, targeted a pocket in Immensi owned by Cosmic Accord, and they were pr- pretty feisty, I have to say. You know, we descended in there. I think they thought we were just roaming around at the start, and then, you know, we didn't go away. They got real salty. Uh, but they've been pretty um, pretty active in their defense, I would say. Um, for instance, you know, we'll we'll put out our anti-ratting crews, and they'll still go out ratting, but they'll pair their ratter with like a curse, or they'll put some tackle on the field to try to get one of our guys who goes in to attack the Ishtar, the Praxis, or whatever they're running around in, 
And they tried that tactic quite a few times. Uh, I don't know if that was just U.S., Nora, or if you've been seeing that around the clock. Well, I haven't seen a chorus in new time zone, but that would have been a, a tricky engagement, yeah, indeed. We've definitely seen similar tactics, though. Um, as you say, uh, Alec, when the contract started, when we first made our presence known, um, people tried to go about the usual business. But as time's gone on, we've made the usual business not very easy. Uh, so we've since seen an adjustment. Um, and the adjustments include, I mean, I got to give some a little bit of credit here to some of the more PVP orientated members of that that group. Um, they certainly have tried to coordinate, uh, you know, opposition. And um, we've had some fun. We've had some, some tit for tat, I, I would put it, uh, you know, different tactics being tried, uh, different combinations of um, bait and and uh, switch and uh, and various other things in between and uh, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun um i think we've been able to match everything that has been thrown at us um but uh certainly given us some food for thought occasionally and it wasn't always easy in particular i want to call out ronaldo halentko i think that's yes. how you say his yeah. name uh <laughs> dude just like First of all, he flies in Enyo in 2022, so right there, he's got some balls. Uh, but he was getting kills on things he really had no business catching, uh, like Kikimoras and bombers and stuff that really should have been out of his reach in one way or another, and he was right up there killing them. I think he killed a, a Vedmac at some point. Not solo, but like was involved, which is a pretty badass kill for an Enyo. So he he did great. Uh, I think he killed you, Nora, as a matter of fact. Uh, yeah, I, I lost actually on, um, to at the start of the contract. I lost uh, what was it, Gnosis, because I tried wanted to try out uh, a brawling fit. I saw from a CSM candidate from Gideon Sendakar. Uh, Can't remember mm-hmm. his last name. Yeah, and it, it held up well. I uh, I traded it for uh, um. The Kaldari Battlecruiser. The Drake? Ferox? The, one, the Ferox, yes. Mm. Traded it with, uh, with the Ferox, but uh, by the time I managed to, to brawl the Ferox down, the, the response fleet was on me, and then, yeah, it's a game over. That was a pretty even trade. Yeah, and then I... Um, well, I, I started out with the Retribution uh, at first, and I, I lost that, actually, to a roaming gang, uh, which came from a wormhole and uh, had some... Uh, very competent tackle pilots in a crusader and uh, in malediction. Yeah, that was a bit of un, uh, a bit uh, unhappy timing uh, losing that. That warped in basically right on top of them. Oh, yeah. The, basically, the only thing they had to do was like, uh, yeah, turn around, lock me, and and I was crammed. Yeah, at the start of the contract, we were leaking a couple ships here and there, and then things got really tight really fast. I think it might have been after your battle cruiser, or, or relatively shortly thereafter. No, it was um, it was a few days after that. Um, but yeah, things got real tight. We just started piling on the kills. weren't taking a lot of losses anymore. Uh, people were being more careful with their bombers, more careful on their scouting. We still lost a couple things here and there, but what we started picking up were really, really nice ratting kills, hauler kills. 
things just started piling up. Even though it was supposed to be just get these guys to stay docked, they kept undocking and we kept killing them when they did. Uh, the contract is still ongoing for a few more days as of this recording, but we are at we are over, excuse me, nine billion isk in damage over less than four weeks with uh, efficiency of eighty six percent and rising. It's really been a case, I think, Alec, of um, at the beginning of the contract, we were as a group, we were looking for a, a certain type of content. Perhaps we were a little bit, we'd had a bit of a break, right, with content. I think we were a bit keen to get back out there and um, maybe took a few risks they wouldn't ordinarily take. But once we started reminding people of the focus and what we were there to do um, and being an exercise in patience, that's when suddenly things started going our way. So it's that sort of irony, really, of, you know, if you go looking for things in EVE, you don't really find what you're looking for. But if you just sit around and wait that stuff often just comes to you and it's just presented to you. Um, and yeah, it's just that, that case, I think of us seeming to be in the background, but we're not, we're always, we're always watching and uh, being patient has, has really paid off. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's really the key to this contract type. And I think we haven't done one in a very long time, certainly not this year. So we're probably talking over a year since we've even done something like this, I expected a little bit of uh, a little bit of adjustment issues sliding back into that. But this used to be Nora's bread and butter; it just isn't as common now. Good Nora. Um, yeah, the, the start was a bit of a hiccup because I think um, you also need to get to know the the area and to get to know the locals. So after a couple of days, you kind of know what people uh, used to fly or, or what they, what chips they they bring to a potential uh, threat as a response and then uh, you can adjust to that and uh, I decided uh, to adjust uh, with an Osprey Navy uh, which has now uh, a humble break uh, 24 kill marks on it <laughs> so um, yeah it's, it's like um, it's a really nice hit and run ship because in, it's rather quick um, you um, have good burst damage with the rapid light missile launchers and um, yeah, but can still like uh, get some uh, steel, even steel ESS sites uh, if you fit dual prop with a micro op drive and an afterburner. And uh, yeah, if you play it smart, um, you're very hard to catch. Dual prop and an Osprey Navy, damn! I have to say, it's been quite entertaining listening to people um, marvel at Nora's Osprey Navy skills and uh, just looking at the kill book going, how what you can kill that with an what with an osprey <laughs> navy <laughs> yeah well it, it's a lot of um of time and like like being patient yeah then that's a big part as well and also um like you have to you have to always be a bit lucky with uh, circumstances if you like engage something like a gila or so uh if the gila knows what he's doing and he's playing it perfectly you'd Osprey Navy uh, has little chance killing it. Right? Um, you run out of buffer tank just too quickly if he keeps his uh, drones on you. But um, as of in one case where uh, uh, Gideon helped me uh, helped me kill a Gila, um, there was uh, he was basically distracting uh, the Gila with his bomber, and the Gila sent his drones after after him. 
which gave me long enough time to get a reload off on the on the rapid light missile launchers and then ah. yeah it was it was basically all about uh the time the drones needed to travel from a to b and without that extra bomber uh on grid um yeah that kill wouldn't have been possible but it's just this it's these tiny little details that uh yeah make a kill happen or not it's, uh, or or if a ship is damaged from uh, the npcs already then uh, yeah that obviously helps but sometimes uh, it's just just isn't barely enough well as long as i think a key part of that osprey navy is also it, it's got the speed to disengage if things aren't working out favorably you exactly. can control the engagement. You can go, oh, not working out. It's going to pull range, warp off, no problem. Yeah, a lot of these ships um, I, I killed or managed to kill there was like uh, like a heretic, for example. Um, it was fitted for like, uh, yeah, with a plate and overall goes about 2,000, 2,200 meters a second with his micro dive on. And yeah, my, my, my Osprey basically. Over, can overtake that uh, with a cold micro drive. So um, it's rather easy to control the, the range there. Uh, even with the low key that was in grid at the time, that was a bit spicy to really make sure not to get into range, but also keep point on, on, the, on the heretic. Yeah, but it uh, worked out in the end, and then you get away with some of these uh, funny kilometers, yeah. And also the um, Federation Day uh, event drugs actually helped uh, quite a bit. Oh, what did they do for you? And it's some uh, Grand Bricks uh, booster. Uh, Grand Bricks booster is is the name of those, and they add some uh, some percentage max velocity, max warp speed, and also a bit of inertia. And you got those from like doing this uh, event race course, which I did on uh, on another character on this account, and then redeemed it basically on my main from the redeem queue, which you can do uh, from space, which a lot of people I've heard don't know. Uh, but it's quite quite easy to do. Just open the redeem queue and then uh, select one of the boosters and click uh, redeem to home station. And because you're not at the home station, you get it injected directly into your uh, into your character. Very cool. Yes, I've noticed a trend recently of more things being able to be done on one character, but then queued up in that redeem queue and then redeemed on another character, which. I found very helpful as well. And uh, uh, that sort of more the customizability of, of things has um, been welcome for me. Well, not too far from our contracts. In fact, getting increasingly closer by the day. <laughs> the Imperium has gone from just casual interest in helping Try and a few other people in the South disrupt the locals to deploying in it and some SIGs. Now, apparently, they are full-on going to war in the south and east against Fire and, by proxy, Panfam. Zero with the story. So, yes, um, the story goes that uh, Imperium decided to go home. Uh, their version of events is they, they went far as far as they wanted to. Um, as a passive sort of outsider who's relatively new to all of this stuff, um, what I noticed was that... Uh, Imperium had been progressing, um, you know, fire put up, put up a fight, but generally, you know, they, they didn't really see a huge amount of opposition to their recent uh, deployment. Their deployment seemed to be mostly for fun, I think. Um, I don't know if it had much, much of a, a political uh, motivation beyond, you know, we're attacking people who helped against the war in the war against us um, 
recently. So, uh, and then um, towards the end of that period, uh, PanFam came down and put up quite a, a resistance. And Imperium, you know, depends who, who whose side you want to on a take on this, right? Did, did they did they turn around because PanFam had turned up, or or had they been out long enough? You know, many 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 weeks by this point. Um, had they gone far enough? Um, you know, had, had they staged enough uh, to, to even go further? Uh, who knows? They, they decided to turn around and, and go home. Um, in the meantime, apparently, um, Fraternity started to attack some of their allies. And those allies were in a different part of space, Dracaris, I believe. So, so they went to help out there. And we end up in a situation where... Um, Panfam continued to hang around, I believe, in 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 the space that uh, they'd previously been fighting, in, and ended up destroying an Imperium Keepstar in six eight FT an impasse. Um, the story goes that uh, I think it was Horde, NC Dot, uh, Fraternity a little bit, um, Legion of Death, Pandemic Legion, Test Razor, all, all on this kill mail for this this uh, this um, Imperium Keepstar, and. If and you- if you haven't watched my geography video, do that. But 68FT is the key to impasse. It is a uh, like a, a hub system. Everything passes through, in, through 68FT and impasse. It's like a spoke. It leads off into a lot of other uh, routes in and out of the region and like the MPCing pockets. But if you control 68FT, you control the whole region of impasse. Ah, I see. And um, I believe that that Imperium acquired this Keepstar um, at a discount from from somebody else uh, relatively recently, I think. I'm not sure about that bit. Anyway, it seems that the Imperium weren't too pleased with um, this Keepstar going down. And again, you know, was that just the the excuse they were looking for or um, for whatever reason they've decided to deploy the entire of the Imperium this time um, to the region. And um, I believe they're going to start off, uh, where is it going to be? Uh, they've got a Keepstar in, in, in GE TAC 8JV. Uh, I think that's in, in catch. And uh, the, they're on the border now to impasse. And every alliance, every capital, and super capital, and Titan will be coming along, says says the Mitanni. Um and the idea of this deployment apparently is um, they want to continue uh, until, and then this should be against fire and, and whoever hangs around, such as Pam Pam. Uh, they're going to continue shooting people until fire agrees to stop hosting uh, Pan Pam on, on the Imperium borders, um, which is an interesting goal because, uh, well, if, if Pan Pam and fire are allies, then, then how can, how can that be? You know, I, I would policed? wonder. Yeah, I would wonder if Fire is even in the position to like say no to Panfem. You know what? Yes, yes. I, I well, they, they're certainly between a rock and a hard place. The whole reason Panfem is there is because they are having trouble standing on their own. So if Panfem pulls out, they're done. And if Panfem stays in, Gunstorm is going to steamroll them. Apparently, so they are. They have no good options right now. I mean, you know, Imperium's um, vision behind this allegedly is that uh, they, they just want to create a buffer between sort of their space and other people's space. 
and you know they, they're upset with with uh, people using their borders and renting them out. Uh, so we'll see, I suppose, how far will they go with this? Well, right now, Tenerifus is owned by Pandemic Cords, so they'll go at least that far. I mean, and uh, <laughs> I imagine the the Legion of Death isolated pocket in what region is that? Faith, maybe? That's probably going to drop. So at that point, you're looking at, are they going to go into Omist or sort of strike deeper into the more populated southeast? I mean, one, one way of interpreting this, um, if you want to talk about this sort of renter thing, is, I suppose, from the Imperium's point of view, they, they went and cleaned out a bit of space. And as soon as they left, um, large alliances decided to rent it out um, to other other people. Now, I don't know if if that's the case or not, um, but that seems to, to have, at least, that's, at least they say that's what's upset them. Um, and is it enough for, for the Imperium that perhaps their borders are, are not occupied by by people renting from from Panfam uh, or, or Fire? I don't know. I don't really know. I, I don't think anyone really knows who's renting space from whom, isn't it? And, and things like this. And it, how much of this is just sort of uh, political? Oh, I guarantee. If, I guarantee you they know who's renting from who. Anyone who's planning out these campaigns probably has a good understanding of what alliances are patch into who and which alliances will probably be more than happy to keep running from the local landowner and which alliances are more likely to retreat if fire actually does pull out. Yeah, everything noted on a very smoky backwater spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's 100% known, Zero, I guarantee it. It's very interesting to me because... I mean, as as a sort of, like I say, more of an observer to these things, I haven't really been immersed in it long enough to know who's telling the truth, who is. Um, but the idea that um, that people are renting space from, from um, say, Panfam, when, when Panfam live so far away, um, it is an interesting notion to think that, uh, you know, that you could sort of try and protect your your customers, your, your tenants then, um, so far away from where, where you're, you you actually live. I mean, yeah, this could be the on promise forever. of protection, really. And when it comes down to it, are they going to turn up and protect them? And how much are they going to throw behind them? Anybody's guess, really. If I was, if I was one of those running alliances, I wouldn't count on it. Surely, you know, on the borders, you must be looking at a discount on that rent, right? In the response <laughs> time, <laughs> right. Yeah, you have to keep the Ansiplex fueled, otherwise people won't turn up. <laughs> well, while all this is going down in the south, we have an interesting development happening in the north. Fraternity is for, I don't know, the second or third time in the past year, two years, expanding their borders. And this one looks to be the most aggressive expansion yet. Uh, they have declared war against Volta and... I don't know if they've declared war against Brave or if Brave has joined Volta to fight against them, but that's basically the battle lines. It's Volta and the Trash Coalition and Brave versus Fraternity and their Winter Coalition, which is basically Fraternity and a couple miscellaneous alliances that don't amount to tons. This is going to be Fraternity's biggest solo test yet. 
prior to this, they'd only pushed out alliances in a little bit in Tribute and then most of Veil of the Silent. The Veil alliances, while they did fight back very valiantly, did not have the military might of Volta. So you could look at this one of two ways. Fraternity, you know, just needs space and they want to push them out. From Volta's point of view, this might be a war they could win, potentially, because... I mean, think about all the trouble Fraternity had with Road Capel and Boss and all these other Veil of the Silent alliances that banded together against them and held out for a very, very long time. Volta has more numbers, just generally speaking, I think a higher quality of fleet, potentially some super capital assets they could throw behind them. Uh, Braves got numbers big time. And I imagine a lot of the Veil of the Silent alliances who still hold a grudge against Fraternity would be more than willing to assist them, either directly or by hitting Frat behind the lines. So this could be a, a, a proper fight. Yeah, indeed. Um, I also think Fraternity... Um, well, my, my ex- this is all based uh, on an experience I had like two and a half years uh, ago when I was uh, actually flying with uh, Winter Coalition. And defended uh, Detroit against um, uh, yeah Legacy Coalition, which was led by Test back then. And um, the main point or the main weakness of Fraternity, which I saw back then, was just basically always fighting uh, with the B team when it comes to uh, European and US time zone uh, timers, because of course their main uh, fighting force is uh, located in uh, uh, in the uh, Far East. In, yeah, Australia, uh, Chinese time zone. So they always struggled with uh, contesting uh, timers on on structures which were uh, which were set during EU and uh, US time zones because they just couldn't get a lot of people on it. I don't know if that has changed. Quite possibly though. But um, then again, I heard some uh, like European uh, alliances leaving, like Lord of Worlds alliances and uh, Destiny's Call. Which are more like the like yeah, which mustered quite some numbers during that uh, that fight over Detroit. So I don't know um, if that has changed uh, in the recent past, but um, I actually think Walter and and uh, Co and Brave uh, have quite a chance of defending their space. I mean, if, well, if we cast our thoughts back to Fraternity's conquest of Venal and Vale. Uh, they didn't make a ton of progress very quickly until Pandemic Horde started to bail them out and, you know, give them their Munin fleets. It's entirely possible this could be a long, drawn-out war. Uh, if it is, it's kind of interesting to think what that would mean. I, I don't know what conclusions to draw from it strategically, other than Fraternity probably won't go south to help with the latest goon Panfam spat, which they probably wouldn't have anyway. I think they're just taking this opportunity to expand themselves when they know the Imperium is going to be busy. And Pandemic Horde is not, at this point, inclined to stop them. So, uh, I don't know. It yeah. depends. I, I don't think this uh, this fight has a downside for Fraternity unless they lose it. But even if they do lose it, I don't know if there will be any lasting consequences for them. So I think at this point, Volta has everything to lose, not tons to gain. That is yeah. true, yeah. 
Um, you go. Just thinking about how, um, you know, from Volta's point of view, what does victory look like? You know, is it just maintaining their borders, their current space? Same with Brave. Um, you know, fraternity, victory for them means taking space. So, you know, what appetite have Volta and Brave got to push back? Um, are Brave and Volta going to be content with holding the line? Or will they see an opportunity to punish fraternity in any way and maybe push back? And if they did push back and perhaps take some fraternity space, especially on those borders, um, would anybody come to fraternity's aid there, uh, especially being busy down south? No, I think fraternity would probably be on its own, but I have a hard time imagining that Volta will be able to threaten them in what is effectively frat's prime time, because you would presume they will have set all their timers to Asian-friendly TZs, where their strongest and most of their opponents are going to be not strong, right? I mean, you might be able to alarm clock a little bit, but not enough to really sustain a war. I think if they're going to fight back and punish, it's probably going to be in the form of structure hits. Taking advantage of Siege Green Patch and only needing to alarm clock for a single timer or something like that. But even then, Fraternity is so, so spectacularly, un, like, unfathomably rich that just hitting them to do ISK damage I don't think really bothers them. Uh, if they're not going to take systems away, impacting their long-term income or not push them out entirely, it's very hard to get an advantage over Frat or say that you've, you've punished them, really. I think them holding the line is probably the best they can hope for and probably the best thing for them versus frat because frat could get quite frustrated if they're applying what should be overwhelming force, overwhelming isk, overwhelming super capitals, etc., and they're not actually gaining much ground. Yes. And it's hard to imagine a reason why brave and Volta would want to go to all that effort for a few more systems or, or whatever it was, whatever it was. Maybe it's just for the content, like people getting bored and uh, yeah pushing for the next uh, available target, and that's Volta. I mean, actually, there is one objective Volta could go for. I'm pulling up my map, so I forget the system's name off the top of my head. Uh, Y19, that's the one. That is the one system where if they could take that, that would be meaningful in a long-term strategic sense. Y19 is the other half of the Declan branch divide. And if you look on your Dotland map or your, well, not Dotland wouldn't show, I guess Verite map would, would show it more easily. But there's a massive, massive gulf in term, in like physical space between those two regions. They're connected by a jump gate, but you can't actually move a capital there with a jump drive. You would have to like gate the capital essentially. But if you're able to take Y19, it doesn't literally have to be Y19, but that would be the one you'd go for, presumably. You could stage capitals in branch, like dread bombs, and seriously threaten any kind of high-end PVEing in that entire region. That would be something they could really hang their hat on, and I think it's a realistic objective if they wanted to try and take it. Yes, I've just pulled up the map now. So why tack one nine? Um, on the border of Declan, right? Yeah. Very interesting. That would be a hard system to take, but it would be a beachhead they could use for whaling operations. 
I used to live that way uh, when I first started playing the game for my first venture into Nalsec, we were living in decline. And um, I remember, you know, that, that pipe quite well, um, heading up towards uh, Branch. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be the one. Or, you know, try to take parts of Tribute, but I feel like Tribute is very heavily reinforced. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, for what it's worth, Volta, we're pulling for you. <laughs> Hold the line, brothers. All right. Uh, moving off into Losek, the Faction Warfare arc, which I guess is the term we should start using for this, the storyline, is starting to center around a system called Althounen, or Athunen. It's a system in Placid where a lot of weird stuff is happening. There's mysterious sites. There's uh, all sorts of news articles coming out around it. And presumably, whatever they're going to do as far as reigniting interest in the faction warfare system will either start or spread from there. Yeah, so somebody on Reddit posted a nice um, sort of query, really, somebody called Ard, um, about why 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 this system? Because it, it's quite a strange system to assault. Uh, it's a dead end in a small pipe. Um, you know, why why focus there? And uh, I, I won't go too much into the, the details. It's pretty obvious, you know, why a dead-end system in, in Losec might be a strange place to start the storyline stuff. Um, and, and, you know, there was a suggestion in the article written that maybe CCP should have maybe put a bit more thought into it. Uh, but CCP did respond. Uh, and, and without giving anything away, they, they basically said, there is a reason for it. Well, if you're going to build something in a shady fashion, a dead-end low-sec system is a pretty good place to do it. I think it makes a ton of sense. Certainly from a, you know, a law and NPC perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, the last um, big uh, law piece we got were, that I'm aware of was of these, um, the dead guy, uh, the deathless, that, that was his name, yeah. And um, yeah, they, they're supposed to be kind of smuggler smugglery type of uh, faction so yeah some back end uh, back really backwater system sounds about right for them yes and and i don't know exactly what but some things have appeared in this system apparently that uh, you know something got decloaked or something some sort of structure yeah it was an uh, edencom structure actually and uh, it was flickering at first like uh, decloaking and uh, uncloaking again there were some uh, Kaldari um, forces on grid, some NPC ships, which uh, attacked everyone that came too close and had bad standings with them. And yeah, now um, I heard that the last thing I heard was that the structure is now uncloaked permanently. But I have to be honest, it, I wasn't expecting Edencom to appear in this uh, this storyline. So Yeah, pretty shady, right? Does that mean there's going to be some sort of Triglavian tie-in as well? Or is the controversy going to be there doing something not Triglavian-related? Well, they're a very might, mighty like uh, organization, like supported by all the empires. Or that's that as far as I know them. So um, I guess um, if we're going to talk about uh, Edencom stuff, we should uh, invite uh, Ashtaroti one time. And he could <laughs> right. uh, like uh, give us a rundown. Yes, I've been desperate for more Ashtarothi uh, talking about this stuff. 
but um, Astroth, he's been taking a bit of a break from it, I believe. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm quite interested now in the law stuff. I mean, it's far too much for me to take in uh, and understand it in any meaningful sense at the moment, but I'm, I'm doing my best to sort of get caught up as quickly as I can. And, um, you know, I got a feeling the Triglavians were, are not going to make an appearance. I think there was a lot of, of uh, frustration from the Edencom um, supporters when, you know, the Triglavians got something out of the uh, the invasion stuff and, and Edencom were kind of left to one side, you know, a few ships and that was it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I hope CCP learned from that um, and doesn't make that mistake again. That would have been harsh. Well, you know, maybe if they had done their job and protected everyone from the Triglavian invasion, uh, you know, they would get a region instead of Potsdam. It's fair. But here I think we are. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, what, what was it? They, they, I think they only managed something like 86 systems, victories in those systems. And, and you know, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Apparently yeah, so. I don't know. I mean, if you... You've, could say they've really failed to protect every system in Pachman. It's quite a few systems. If only they had uh, shot a couple more ships, turned out for a few more ops. I hope hmm. every Edencom capsuleer out there is wondering, could I have done more? <laughs> <laughs> and, and would I have better rewards if I had? No, I'm fucking with you. Um... I, I think you're probably right. I, I think this whole arc, from everything they've said in, in FanFest and other places, very going to be very Empire-focused. Uh, it's probably like Edencom not being as neutral as it should be, or they're you know, doing some kind of research they shouldn't be involved in, that kind of thing. It will be interesting, but not as interesting as the actual changes to Faction Warfare, which I await. Yes, and uh, I think there was a mention uh, of further details on the expansion coming in September. So it really does feel like, you know, although people are probably sort of wondering where this new new content is, we've now had you know a start of this arc in 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 something tangible then, and um, an early announcement of an announcement. Um, so so some some signs of progress, and I'm quite excited. I know it's a long time for everyone to wait. It's a long time for me to wait, too. But at the end of the day, the game is still fun. So just enjoy it for what it is for now. And we'll see what they've got going. Uh, One thing they do have going is a sale on Omega again. (laughs) Well, you think this is like a tacit understanding that they might have fucked up? Alec, I was waiting for this sale. Because as a an ardent supporter of the 50% off Omega and MCT certificate deal. And, you know, I wait every three months. I wait. I, I know when it's going to come because my existing one's going to run out, right? So the other day, for the first time in a long time, my multiple character training ran out. And I waited and I waited and I thought, oh, no, it's not coming back, is it? That's it, it's gone. We're just stuck with the new prices. No more deal on multiple character training. And 24 hours later, an email dropped in my inbox and I looked at it and I thought, it's oh, it's back, it's back, thank goodness. 
And to my surprise, um, it came back for me in the UK, it came back at exactly the same price. Okay. So for me now, um, at least the, my, my, the cost of my subscription has not changed for any of my characters because I think it does that. I think there is a slight increase in price for people who are not in the UK, but we did have a, a price increase, uh, in something like 2020. So perhaps that's why, um, but yeah, yeah, basically now um, the cost of my subscription for my characters has not changed as a result of the price increase. But interestingly, you can now get this multiple character training and 50% off the Omega sort of package in newer varieties. So you can now get it. I think it's six month, 12 month, 24 month variations as well, each with their own subsequent discounts. And looking at the six month package, it's quite a significant discount uh, for me looking at sort of the monthly price of it and breaking it down that way. So in some sense, you know, if I were prepared to, instead of going for the usual three-month deal where I get three months of Omega and three months of multiple character training for a certain price, if I am prepared to do six months instead, I'm actually paying less than I was before the price increase. Well, that is interesting. And the other thing that I've heard, but I haven't actually sort of actually purchased the multiple character training thing yet. I'm going to do it later, actually. The other thing I've heard is that whereas before... As soon as you bought the deal, the multiple character training started on one of your characters um, and it just started ticking along. Now, you could you could change which character it applied to, I think. Not that I ever did. Um, but, but it, you know, it was just sort of running for three months and there was nothing you could do to stop it. Um, I believe now they've actually made an adjustment. And what you get instead is is three... Say, say if you went for the three-month version, you get three one-month redeemable certificates in your redeem queue. So obviously they're attached to the character. You can't sell them. You can't sort of transfer them to a different account. I should say that they're attached to the account, right? And my understanding is that you can now sort of apply one of those certificates to one of the, the three characters on that account, and then you could apply one of the other certificates to the third character if you wanted to, if you were that way inclined. Um, so in some sense, a bit more flexibility as well as, you know, a holding of the price and even, you know, a bit of a discount if you want to invest in it longer term. No, oh, that's pretty cool. I, I have actually purchased like the MCT uh, before uh, when it was just like, uh, I think the three months uh, package. Um I don't. I'm not sure if I, if I will do now, but um, having that uh, certificate in the redeem queue is actually pretty handy. Yeah, that's that's a good adjustment. Yeah, I'm yet to confirm with my own eyes how it works and whether I've described it properly. But I've read a bit about it, and that's my understanding, and that's what people are saying about it. Nice. Yeah, it's still a pretty hefty amount of money. Uh, I I guess you are getting a pretty good value for it. Three hundred twenty-five dollars is a lot to throw down. That's for the uh, twenty-four months. If you want to get the most you can possibly get, yeah, I think it's interesting because say, how does it compare to twenty-four months of Omega, right? Because it's a similar price, and you get you know multiple character training along with it for twenty-four months. Well, it's a it's a good offer. It is. Well, we'll see what they do with this whole price thing. I imagine they're going to have to stick with it for a little while, but you've got to believe they are looking for other ways to get people back that may have churned due to the cost. 
the recent economic report, we haven't gone into it, but not great. Some some troubling signs on the horizon as far as ISK velocity and availability of certain resources. Yes, and I think uh, less of an incentive to have um, more accounts is something that I'm sort of picking up on, looking at the different economic reports and things and people talking about the economy. It seems like maybe having several accounts now isn't as profitable as it was before. Um, now, whether those accounts that, that are impacted were paid for with, with actual real-world money or they were sort of plexed, I, I can't really comment too much. Um, yeah, I've certainly noticed a change. And uh, it, this is the – we're recording this episode during the usual summer dip, isn't it? But uh, usually there's a little recovery after the summer month of July. Will we see that recovery? Well, I think I'm trying to look. Uh, I'm going back on EVE Offline about a year ago, and I think we were sort of 24-ish, 26-ish thousand players until about August, and then it starts to climb back up to normal. So we are not too far off it, 24, 22, 21. It's down uh, for sure. I think you see it pretty clearly if you hop onto EVE Offline and you start looking at trends over period. Things kind of hold up till about May and then just steadily decline, decline, decline till we're here now. So some of this is summer. Some of this has to be price. Some of this has to be people getting a little bit impatient with CCP. It's hard to tell how much of, of it is you know, to which explanation, but if you look at over the course of a year, 27,000 players average. Six months, 25. Three months, 21. Over the past month, 18,000. Past two weeks, 17,000. There is a definite downward trend. It's unmistakable. What's causing it can be open to speculation. You know the summer months are at least part of it. But if we we will see when it comes time for winter... You know, CCP's patch, I think, has to do a lot of legwork here to try to get people back in the doors this winter. If they don't hook them back, then we go into next year at a much lower player count than we had before. It's not a good sign. Yes, yes, I think you're right. The recovery from this dip, and it's unmistakable that the player count is lower, isn't it? No matter how you look at it, there's no way of, of seeing it any other way. But yeah, will it but I mean, like, timing your patch release for September is... Makes sense. That would be when to do it, early September. And yeah, try so to they, get people back in. That's when you can hook them. So they, they, they've said they're going to announce more about the expansion, which I think is due at the end of the year. They're going to announce more about the expansion in September. And hopefully by that point, we'll have seen more of the arc as well. Yeah, that, that September announcement doesn't have to be a patch release, but it does have to be substantive. Yes. I think what they'll most likely do is uh, outline 80 plus percent of what they're going to release in December and start throwing it onto uh, you know forums for feedback, test server for testing, etc. And then presumably there will be some last minute surprises between September and November, December. Presumably there will be some uh, iterations based on player feedback if they're smart. And then it'll be the release, probably mid to 
mid-November to early December, I would guess. They want to put it too close to the holidays. I am timeline. We're all looking. We're all looking at it. We know mostly what is going to be in it. If you watched FanFest Living Universe panel, you know what is going to be in this patch. The concept is there. It's the delivery, the execution, all the details. I think are going to be the main thing. And at the end of the day, it is still not going to address the price increase itself, but it will be a step in the right direction as far as adding new and exciting things to the game. I am somewhat reassured by the recent um, and timely. I think they they did say it was going to come at this time. Uh, changes to the the graphical updates, you know, the DirectX twelve, the the enhanced um, textures, but also uh, I was surprised then that that also included the the changes to the new player experience stuff. Um, and you know, th- there's more incentive now for newer players and existing players to go and do some of those um, little tasks like. You know, go and go and scan down five different things, different sites, and uh, go and go and complete four different combat sites after the uh, the typical tutorial stuff, in order to have rewards like uh, isk and skill points and things like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's apart from a few bugs, um, it seems very good. And uh, that that sort of timely patch that we've just had, uh, although it's not actual new content as, as such, um, it's reassuring that you know progress is still ongoing and some of the stuff that they promised us would come at this point is already here and i've walked in on a few of those um those sites just have a quick look of those um those two typical career missions the tutorial missions and uh, they look wonderful now the um the, the huge asteroids are there in very high resolution the uh some of the um structures that are <laughs> they used to make me laugh really some of the structures that i you'd see uh, the pleasure house or whatever um they're really good now they really look really really good and um, yeah. yeah it's much more modern yeah um I, I think um we see also like um a great uh example of software development taking quite a while until um yeah the the groundwork actually like uh gets uh, or until you get uh, to harvest something, um, which also CCP like uh, was um, was saying at FanFest, like uh, harvest season is about to, about to about to happen. And um, if you look at the um, the air carrier program, which is basically uh, the basic tech as I see it, is from the activity tracker, which came into Eve uh, in late 2018. That's four years ago, and. Uh, once I have that so present in mind because I like wrote a blog post like two years later in 2020 about it, why there did nothing happen with it, and now we finally see um, what has come from that. So yeah, it takes in time. It takes in time, and um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. All right, moving into host highlights. Uh, I don't want to say his name because I, I want to hold it back for maybe a bit of a surprise for later. But uh, as soon as I hopped on, within a few seconds, Sabat joined from uh, Tregalian Times. And, and he's not even in NAR. He just turned up and was like, oh, my God, Alec. So we had me and Sabat hanging out. In the few more minutes, we had a bunch of other NAR guys from the U.S. time zone piling in. And I was greeted to a Twilight Serenade celebrating my return. That was quite, quite cool. Very glad to be back. Zero? 
That's lovely. I, I did notice the spike in, in comms yesterday and I was laughing about it, thinking, uh, I wonder what's going on there. Um, for me, um, I had to take a bit of a, a real life uh, hiatus from the contract, mid contract. Uh, I was quite active at the start. I'll be active at the end. But um, I did manage to respond to a ping that came from uh, one of our members. Um, something, 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 six Ishtars, something, something. And um, I thought, okay, okay, uh, a quick look at it and hopped straight on. And uh, the task at hand was, oh, can you, can you just help us? We've, uh, we've managed to acquire a wreck uh, containing six Ishtars. Um, <laughs> so, okay, I will, <laughs> yeah, as you do, just stumble upon one in the contract area. I, I think they'd accidentally shot somebody, um, blown up a, a freighter or not a freighter, um, you know, a hauler or something. You know, DST, as, yes. Yeah, as you do. And, um, yeah, I, I just sort of hang around on grid while uh, one by one these these poorish tars were extracted from from the contract area. I mean, where they've gone uh, is anyone's guess. I suppose they've left. They've completely left the the uh, the region, and um, yeah, they've disappeared. So um, quite fun. I, I give credit to the locals for trying to bomb the wreck uh, unsuccessfully, but they did try. And, uh, yeah, quite a lot of fun just hanging around on comms, watching these Ishtars disappear one by one. They just vanished. Yeah, some wormhole, I think, was involved there. It's it pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> making their yeah. way to Thera, making their way to Empire, making their way to Veil of Asylum as we speak. <laughs> yeah, and um, my uh, highlight also involves an Ishtar, um, but this one was actively piloted. Um, uh, the pilot is named uh, Kale Schatzner. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, but um, that guy was super persistent. Um, he was like ratting in his little side. And um, yeah, he uh, managed to warp out from my uh, Osprey Navy uh, a couple times. I think it was three times. Uh, and always waited a bit, came back again, and he warped out again. Uh, but eventually, at the fourth run, I think, uh, then I got him. And uh, he was a good sport about it. So it was this nice little cat and mouse game there. Of course, shout outs to our Golden Elite members, Acer Card, Bodie Wilson, Fade Atreides, Kestrel Swainson, Crav, Mark Havoc, Tane Tengu, and Tweak. Thank you for your continued support during our brief hiatus. And I also want to give a shout out to the NAR directors holding it down while I've been out of game. U Zero, uh, but especially to Aikyo and Akbad. They've been really active, leading from the front, taking care of all sorts of recruitment and administrative issues while I've been gone. And I've been gone for a week and a half, I think, longer than I had initially planned to, just because of all the difficulties with this move. It really hasn't been a smooth process. Um, but I am back now and was happy to see things running along very smoothly upon my return. My shout-out goes to Gideon Mastrati Jr., who has been uh, assisting us on this contract very, very uh, enthusiastically. Um, if Nora wasn't around, you know, soloing tens of people in, in, a, in an Osprey Navy, I think it's fair to say Gideon would be at the top of the, uh, the running order for kills and unable to make it onto the show today, I believe, away, uh, enjoying life somewhere at the minute. We'll be back soon. But yeah, shout out to Gideon and uh, Gideon's work, not just with the PvP, but also the uh, logistical industrialist sort of operations behind the scenes as well. So uh, lots of skills being shown off and uh, 
pretty much to the uh, contract opponent's uh, frustration. Yeah. Um, I was about to say Gideon as well, but uh, then Cyril took that from me. So uh, I will do a late shout-out for my Anger Games captain, uh, Damasus Kadesh, who yeah, led us, the team, only need two comps uh, to victory in Anger Games 5. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping to hear his uh, lovely voice again in a promised interview with Jintan sometime soon. Now, Nora, I hate to put you on the spot here, but obviously only to need two comps, used more than two comps to obtain victory. Do you feel like despite winning, it you had to compromise your core values as a team? Um, not at all. Uh, only need two comps was basically uh, yeah, a meme ascending from uh, the Alliance tournament. And uh, also it was a bit of mind games, of course. So uh, pretending only to have two comps, right? Of course we had more. And I suppose... You know, you say you only need two comps. It doesn't mean you can't use more than two. You yeah, know, sometimes you, still... you just want to show off, right? Like uh, yeah. Blaster Rush in the in the second match of the finals uh, with the MGD play. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen that yet, uh, I greatly recommend to watch that. It's uh, on the, I think it's on the CCP uh, YouTube channel by now. Looking forward to your Anger Game Six team. Didn't want that comp anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's it, guys. Head to declarationsofwar.com to participate in this show's poll. Head to youtube.com slash C slash K to check out our show highlights and leave a comment. Noir recruitment has been going strong. We've picked up a lot of great new pilots over the course of this contract, and we're looking for a few more as we head into our next one, which will be starting very shortly. And we'll bring all the news and highlights from that job here to you on the show. But if you want to be part of it, if you want to be in these ops we're talking about, flying these fleets, flying these Osprey Navy issues, killing people while they're ratting, uh, and, and just harvesting the most beautiful salt and tears you've ever seen in local, uh, you can come join Noir. We are looking for you. We're alpha-friendly. Uh, we're a bit on the high-end PvP side, so we do look for people with experience, but you know that can be you as an alpha. We're totally down with it. Come hang out with us, chillax, in Cafe Noir Dot, where you'll find a link to our Discord and answers to all of your questions. That's Cafe Noir Dot in game. Cafe space noir, period. And uh, wherever you are, wherever you're flying for, whoever you voted for, good hunting, listeners. <laughs>